Evan, can we start this episode uh, with a Eurovision song? If you insist. Okay, well, here's one, and then we'll get back to more important things. Solo soldi, soldi Come se avessi avuto soldi, soldi Men nando noi come What did you think? That was great. You know, I, I, I wouldn't expect anything less. You know, I combined two songs there. I took... Uh, the Italian entry, Soldi, sung by Mahmoud, a uh, uh, Italian-Egyptian son of uh, immigrants, and I combined that with Israel's song, A Nice, nice Coexistence, uh, uh, which really was what this Eurovision in Tel Aviv was about. Is that is that an original? Uh, it is original, but I'll give credit it, to the artist Is that an originally well, like Koa's um, mix? But yes. Got, got to give credit. And the artist, sorry, sorry. If I'm going to give credit, I must give credit. So, Soldi by Mahmoud, the Italian entry, finished second. Um, very catchy song. And the Israeli entry, Home, by Kobe Merimi, uh, finished 23rd. But also a very beautiful song as well. Um, that was a you know great mashup. I think you have a second career coming up in DJing. And uh, it looks pretty promising. But I don't want this episode to get completely sidetracked by... Eurovision discussion. As I think the last episode showed, we can spend a lot of time on uh, Eurovision. We could spend a whole episode. Uh, but this is Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum, recording from New York. And I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director, recording from Tel Aviv. So, in addition to Eurovision and the release of your new mixtape, This past week also saw the Trump plan for Israeli-Palestinian peace, in air quotes, peace, uh, finally getting off the ground after months of delays and false starts. Um, And it looks like uh, there's going to be some kind of official public event after all this talk that, you know, the Trump plan was a couple months away, a couple weeks away. Uh, It looks like they finally have a hard date uh, for the end of June for a some kind of a conference. They're calling it a workshop in Bahrain um, between uh, uh, sponsored by the United States and uh, with delegates from the Arab countries. And they're inviting um, the Israelis as well as uh, Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority, or rather the PLO, the PLO, which has already uh, rejected participation and uh, Palestinian businessmen who have had a mixed to negative reaction. Yeah, and so um, we know that there are a few uh, prominent countries that will be attending. Um, I think the uh, the Emiratis, uh, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia will attend a conference. Um, the dates are June 25th and 26th. Um, and like the official name, I think it's the Peace to Prosperity Economic Workshop. Like I think that's what's uh, the marketing experts have decided. Um, but yeah, so this is clearly an attempt um, to uh, do like an economy like first uh, plan to try to get, um, which I'm, I must say it's it's not 
Um, if we're looking at a plan that that was completely dismissed on a political level even before it was announced, um, focusing on economic issues first, like in the current circumstances, is probably like the right decision. Um, but the question is, um, like, what are they? If the Palestinians don't even attend the Palestinian Authority, uh, what does that mean about? these negotiations. Right. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with addressing economic issues. And it's interesting because the Trump administration and Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt have used this talking point that their plan is the new plan, that it's different from all the other failed proposals. But if you look back at every other peace process sponsored by administrations of both parties uh, from the United States, there's always been an economic component. There's not going to be peace. There's not going to be a two-state solution without some kind of economic component. Uh, the Palestinian and Israeli economies are too closely intertwined for that not to be a function of it. And the Obama administration had relationships with Palestinian businessmen. Uh, past administrations have had these relationships. So this isn't really new. So, And, and I agree with you, Eli. There's nothing wrong on its surface with this idea of an economic workshop and with focusing on the economic issues. The problem is that there is no viable political horizon attached to this because um, the Trump administration has been fairly clear that their plan is not going to include Palestinian statehood, uh, which is just a condition that Palestinians are never going to accept. Um, and, And Jared Kushner has said rather explicitly that they're not going to use the traditional two-state model, which would include an independent Palestine. So there's no reason to expect that the PLO would accept this. Um, And many Palestinian businessmen uh, are probably going to and have rejected this on principle. I imagine that there are also some who might have been interested. I believe there's there's one, uh, a prominent one in in, uh, from Hebron that I'm just, his name is slipping. Uh, I forget his name. I know who you're talking about. They they have there's he's he's the guy who has this close relationship with the the settlers in Hebron and and they always tout him around in their photo ops the Judea and Samaria he's also close with of Trump and beyond these notable exceptions and and I don't discount that there may have been others who may have just been willing to go to give it a try and I would imagine that there's a fair amount of pressure uh, from the PLO and the Palestinian Authority and other factions not to attend and this isn't to an endorsement of the Trump program I, I think that it's a, a dangerous uh, a dangerous farce frankly um, but still you know there may have been Palestinian businessmen who weren't totally on board but just want to you know give it a wait and see approach and there's probably some pressure on them not to attend. Um, I mean, if you can imagine going to this conference where they're saying there's not going to be a state of Palestine and then coming back to the PA controlled areas. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I don't I don't think they're going to announce that there's not going to be a state of Palestine at this conference. I think the point, point of this conference is to absolutely not even touch any of the uh, the core issues. Um, right. I, I don't I don't mean that they're all, going to say explicitly at this conference, no Palestine, but that's the understanding going into based on Jared Kushner's public comments, based on the administration's angle. So they're, they're part of a process that implicitly will result in a, a non-sovereign Palestinian entity. Yeah, I mean, that's probably what the, I mean, if we're just going to speculate, and again, a lot of speculation, because we don't know a lot. Um, I think this is going to be an attempt 
to, uh, and just chime in if you think I'm completely off, to kind of buy the Palestinians, especially in the West Bank, with a bunch of economic incentives to create a situation where they are so, these economic incentives appeal to them to such a degree where uh, after the conference, they start applying pressure on the Palestinian Authority. We want the Trump plan. We want the Trump money. Uh, we want the money from the Gulf that has been promised, and we don't even know if any countries have actually promised to give money. Uh, there have been reports that uh, a few Gulf countries have, have talked about it. Um, and then so their idea would be that the pressure is applied on the Palestinian Authority, which either give in or, uh, along with pressure from other Arab countries who are, I guess, in aligned with the, with, with the United States, and that would create a situation where they have to come to the table to talk about the political issues. And I assume, like, what the Trump plan talks about is that, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's like, I don't think they're going to get into terminology of, I, th- I think they'll probably call it some sort of state, but I think it's, uh, uh, un- and, like, have give them permanent UN status and things that are state-like, but at the same time give Israel complete security control uh, forever and things that are just, non-starters for, or they have been non-starters for the Palestinians since the beginning of uh, negotiations. Um, so I think that's what we're looking at. I mean, I don't expect us to get to the to the later stages, um, but I think that's the direction that things are headed. In. I think that you're right about the administration's thinking. I think the administration's thinking is totally off, but I think that your assessment of how they are looking at things from the White House is correct. The one thing that I'll say is that, you know, you characterized the the idea of there not being a sovereign Palestinian state as speculation. I don't think it's speculation at this point. I think that we're past that point, uh, given uh, what Jared Kushner has said at the, the Time magazine event, um, given his uh, other public comments uh, from him and uh, other officials. I think that the direction that they're heading in is one of no Palestinian state. They've been very reluctant to uh, condemn West Bank annexation, which would have been a consensus opinion previously between Democratic and Republican administrations. So I think that we can't kid ourselves that to the extent that there is a political element, um, that is that one of the central features will be a non-sovereign Palestinian entity. Now, like you said, uh, with their whole calculation that they can uh, get Palestinians to challenge the PA and then in turn force them to accept the deal, um, along those lines, this isn't a real peace plan. It's kind of a cynical play to try and force um, essentially regime change uh, in the Palestinian Authority. And, you know, it's built with a mind towards the Palestinians rejecting it at the offing. Um, They've put themselves in a situation. The United States has put itself in a situation uh, after moving the embassy to Jerusalem, after recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, after cutting off all the aid uh, to the the West Bank and Gaza, to UNRWA, the Palestinian Refugee Agency at the UN, where the Palestinians have cut off contacts with the United States. And so that they knew that the Palestinians were going to reject this, not at the end of the process, but from the get-go. And that puts the United States in a position where they can try and leverage some kind of moral authority, um, whether or not they it's deserved or whether or not people will buy it is another question. Um 
but yeah, and obviously, I all this is happening when you have like a very uh, unstable financial situation with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and I mean the Palestinian Authority. This has been like a crisis that's been going on for for several months with. Uh, the Palestinians refusing to accept uh, their allocated tax like revenues from Israel after Israel cut uh, uh, pr- prisoner payments. Um, and so that has caused a situation where, I mean, Palestinian security forces have, the average are taking a 50% cut to their paychecks. So we're talking about a lot of economic turmoil uh, with the Palestinian Authority. And so at, at a time... Um, when that's happening, we're going to have this, this conference with these economic incentives and stuff. So, I mean, they're j- it's going to be very interesting to see how, 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 it, how it plays out. Right, and then an interesting split-screen effect that's going to be going on while this conference is taking place. I believe UNRWA is running a, a pledging or, or fundraising conference at the same time. Um, and, you know, it's interesting uh, – not interesting. It's it's frankly offensive to see the the U.S. administration that cut all of its aid to the West Bank and Gaza now asking other countries to completely pick up the bill and you know UNRWA for all its problems. I mean the UNRWA the UNRWA bill has been like picked up by mostly by the Europeans and stuff, and that's been and also we have uh, the Qataris funneling money into both Gaza. Uh, and the West right, Bank. but I'm talking about for, as a way of scoring brown, like scoring points with Washington, right? Like that. But I'm, I'm talking about the, the these these grand scale ideas that are entailed in the Trump administration's vision for its uh, so called economic peace, which again I think is is less of a peace plan and more of kind of a play to uh, push the Trump administration's agenda in this area. Um, there's also yeah, and again, and again, we have a few countries that have said they'd attend, but I mean, there's no guarantee about money on the table, which is like a huge. I mean, that's like if that's the entire component, and you can't don't have any countries coming out and committing to it. It, it just seems like yeah, they're, they're gonna they're gonna everybody's out to lunch here. But um, the, the the states that I would imagine, I could be wrong, but I would imagine that the Arab governments that attend will issue kind of standard platitudes that they want peace. Uh, maybe they'll mention the Arab Peace Initiative, which Israel has never replied to, and the Trump administration is certainly not basing their plan off of. That's the idea that uh, Israel can trade a two-state solution for normalization with the, the Arab states. So maybe they'll mention that. But they'll, they'll, they'll give the standard line. Um, I don't know regarding whether they'll commit money, but I, I can tell you uh, that I would imagine that they are all very uneasy about this process. And I think that we can see that simply in the choice of venue, that it's being hosted in Bahrain. Because Bahrain is the kind of a Saudi client state. It's a very small country. And they, they on the one hand, probably aren't doing anything that the Saudis don't want them to do. If they wanted to host the conference, they probably had to go through Saudi Arabia to uh, get their approval to do it. And if Saudi Arabia, on the flip side, wanted them to host the conference, then the Bahrainis probably didn't have a say one way or the other. And to me, this gives the Saudis and the Emiratis and these other uh, larger countries uh, that have a little more autonomy, a way to 
sort of see if this is a thing that's going to immediately blow up in their faces. And if it does, then the scope of that failure is going to be mitigated by the fact that it happened in Bahrain, this, this small, relatively isolated country that really is dependent on Saudi Arabia and the GCC. And if you recall, they needed GCC uh, Gulf um, military intervention to put down an uprising in 2011. They were more recently uh, the recipient of a financial bailout from the Gulf countries. So... You know. Yeah, I agree. And just to add to that, I mean, you see you, Bahrain's response. I mean, they received like quite a bit of criticism uh, for being kind of the place to ho- that, that hosts uh, the workshop. And I mean, but right away they said that, uh, I mean, I'm quoting uh, Sheikh Khalid, who's their foreign minister, and he said they continue to be championing the brotherly Palestinian people and the restoration of their legitimate rights in their land and an independent state with its capital as East Jerusalem. Um, and so he's, and he added to that that there's no other reason for hosting this other than their support for the Palestinians. This is clearly something that's at odds with uh, what uh, the administration is planning. We had similar comments coming from the Emiratis. Um, so that just even shows, before, we even, before we've gone to Bahrain, um, this is a recipe for, for, uh, for failure. Right. The Trump administration is not going to have the leverage to get the Arab states to officially change their tune on the Palestinian issue. Their line is and is going to continue to be that there should be two states for two peoples based on the 1967 lines uh, with a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem. Um, based roughly on the Arab Peace Initiative 2002, like this, in line with that, without any major... Right. Like, like, I, like I had mentioned, this idea that, that they're willing to normalize with Israel officially under the conditions of a two-state solution. On the flip side, a lot of these Gulf Arab states are recipients of significant American aid, and so they're not going to snub the United States preemptively. So they'll attend, they'll show up, but it's not necessarily an endorsement of the Trump plan. And by by, by, by shoving it all off onto Bahrain, uh, they're, they're giving it to, they're basically making it someone else's problem from, from the Saudi and the Emirati perspective. It's not really their problem. They can wait and see if this is something that they can proceed with. The I, I'm certain that they were watching when there was talk about Bahrain uh, normalizing relations with Israel, and that's certainly something that went through Saudi Arabia. They wouldn't normalize relations with Israel uh, without the consent of Saudi Arabia, and, and they haven't yet. Um, but there was talk of this late last year, and they were probably testing the waters to see how far they can go without things exploding. And likewise, there was a uh, World Entrepreneurship Conference earlier this year in April, and there was supposed to be an Israeli business delegation going to this conference, which was also going to take place in Bahrain, and the Bahraini parliament protested against the, the government. There were protests from other Arab state officials. Uh, the... the um, a Kuwaiti minister uh, said that he would refuse to attend the summit if in this uh, summit in April, if there was an Israeli delegation. This is Kuwait, supposedly one of these uh, more moderate uh, states, saying that they wouldn't attend if there were an Israeli delegation present. And finally, there was a threat from a terror organization in Bahrain that they would attack the the hotel where the Israelis were staying. And 
this is not to say that that's a good thing. That's a horrible thing. People shouldn't be threatened based on their nationality or for traveling to a conference. But what it does tell us is that there's not a willingness um, across the spectrum at the government level or on the level of these terrorist organizations to simply surrender this Palestinian issue and just go along uh, with the United States. So the Arab states are going to uh, very tepidly do the minimum of participation and see yeah, what, no, that, see what that, I, I agree with with almost all of that. Um, I would just say uh, I think Netanyahu would obviously try to convince you the opposite and say that, look, I've not advanced the Palestinian issue, issue at all uh, in my entire last term. Um, but these relationships with Arab countries have have improved. Um, and I mean, the only like I would say that. The only reason, I mean, the only stumbling block is not actually uh, that these governments care deeply about the Palestinian is- issue. It's something that's unchanged. It's the, the public. It'd be very hard for any of these countries to uh, go along with this this Trump plan without a huge res- like response from their respective uh, publics, uh, which are obviously very uh, the Palestinian like struggle for them is. Is very, is very important. Right. And, and you know, Netanyahu's argument that he's achieved progress with the Arab states is not totally incorrect. He, he had his meeting in Oman. Um, there are contacts uh, with the other Gulf Arab states um, that are in a lot of ways based on a mutual enmity towards Iran. That, that yeah, almost they, exclusively based. I mean, I don't think that, I mean, there may be other like things about tech co- like cooperation and but we're not even there yet. I mean this is honestly almost exclusively uh to deal with the, the big enemy. Right. And there there also have been some instances where there have been international events and an Israeli delegation has been allowed to attend. But if you look at some of some of the uh events where Israelis have attended, um for example, uh there was the the judo competition last year, the International Judo Federation threatened the United Arab Emirates that if they didn't allow every country, meaning Israel included, to attend, then the UAE would not be allowed to host this event. The UAE likes to be this hub of these big, flashy entertainment events. So, uh, you know, that that got them to submit. But there, there has been some level of progress. You see the meetings that Netanyahu had with uh, um, in Oman. Some other Israeli ministers have been able to go abroad. But then you compare that with the kind of progress that occurred in the 90s uh, during the Rabin and Perez premierships and um, when they were making progress on the Palestinian issue and you saw elements. And there was not the same like strategic threat from Iran as well. I mean, we have, like, it was a completely different. Right. The, Iran- the, the Iranian threat was newer. It, 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 was, it was not even two decades after the, the Islamic Revolution and um, you didn't have the war in Syria. Um, and all these other uh, all these other proxy conflicts and, and disputes, and um, so if you look at the progress that was made in the '90s, uh, there were elements of the Arab League boycott that were repealed. Um, you had the beginning of the contacts that Netanyahu has been able to capitalize on. Um, you know that and and coming out of the 1990s and the early 2000s is when you have the release of the Arab Peace Initiative although that was based on something uh, from the 80s but essentially the framework that Netanyahu is operating in that allows him to have these contacts with the Arab states he's he's 
working on or he's 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 capitalizing on a framework that was built by his political opponents by Rabin and Perez 25 years ago. And you can obviously sell to the Israeli public like look I'm doing all these uh, making all these great uh, alliances in the region without giving up the West Bank so they can send rockets on Ben Gurion airport like that's his line of which is obviously a very very like compelling argument that Netanyahu can can back up but that's kind of another issue but I think this just shows like we know what happened in the 90s with Israel growing its relationships around the world just imagine uh, a process a real process towards uh, getting us closer to an arrangement with the Palestinians uh, along with the uh, the regional uh, the will to uh, come together against Iran and I think this is, I mean, this will go down in history if things don't change. It's a huge missed opportunity uh, to really normalize ties with, with almost all of the Arab world. Right. The one, the one, last, thing, the one last thing I'll say on the Trump plan and, and about your idea of missed opportunity is that the biggest missed opportunity in all of this is always the Arab peace initiative. This idea that was put forward by Saudi Arabia and the Arab League that they would normalize relations with Israel in the context of a two-state solution. Now, there are conditions in there that Israel may not be willing to accept at face value. If you look at the exact proposal, um, there's not going to be a two-state solution tomorrow. So that's also a factor. But Israel has never even responded formally to the Arab Peace Initiative. They've never even said, this is a framework that we're willing to work within with certain reservations. Um, they, they've been completely silent on it. And it seems like a really excellent starting point uh, to to build off of negotiations. Again, it's not going to change things overnight. And Israelis don't have to accept it wholesale. Um, but yeah, there, this is something that could pass Israel by because if the Iranian threat ever abates, and, and it would be good if it does, um, the, the, the one uh, negative aside is that uh, the Arab states may find themselves with less use for Israel, um, which could be a negative. Okay, well, I'm sure we could continue this conversation um, on uh, the Peace to Prosperity workshop, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more uh, as things progress and as we get closer to the, to the workshop. Um, meanwhile, in Israel, um, about a week and a half ago, Benjamin Netanyahu got approval from uh, the president, Reuven Rivlin, to get a two-week extension to form his government, and that deadline is approaching. Uh, on Tuesday of next week, that deadline will be up. Uh, there is no further extensions, and if Netanyahu cannot form a government by Tuesday, um, that will... Uh, the ability, or it will be the turn of Benny Gantz to form a government. Now, most analysts, uh, including me and and you, I, I assume, Evan, think that that's a very unlikely situation, and Netanyahu will be able to uh, get all the parties to agree. Um, there are a few things that is that have been discussed. Um, one option is that Netanyahu forms a government with 60 uh, seats, which would not be a majority, it would be half of the seats in the Knesset, and he would have support from uh, a Vigdor Lieberman uh, fr from the side in specific uh, situations. Um, right now, uh, I think Netanyahu has pretty much come to agreement with, with all the parties. The main thing that is 
stopping uh, uh, coalition negotiations is uh, Israel Beitenu and Avigdor Lieberman's party, who are uh, standing so far, at least they've stood strong to their commitment of uh, making this enli- this Haredi enlistment bill a must if they are going to enter the government. And obviously, the Haredi ultra-Orthodox parties are against this. So this is, I mean, Netanyahu has, has been meeting with all, I think even tonight in Israel, he met with all the party heads. Um, he also revoked a 2013 uh Law. This was done by the the Knesset committee, uh, passed by a vote of fourteen to ten, to revoke a twenty thirteen law that limited the amount of ministers in the Knesset, which means that Netanyahu can appoint as many ministers as he wants, ministers without a portfolio, um, and he'll use that as bargaining chips to try to get this to all come together. Um, that's where we're at, and it's going to be very interesting, Evan. What 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 do you think, or what did I miss? I mean, I think you you got it all. You know, there's the internal dispute within Likud over uh, the idea of personal immunity legislation for Netanyahu, um, which is something that, if I understood correctly, Netanyahu wanted in the coalition agreement, sort of the the document that would form the basis of the the new government's agenda. Um, but yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll be interesting to see um, where Lieberman lands. Um, he he. He's someone who, uh, you know, has very strong convictions, but has nevertheless uh, been been known to go back and forth. He started in the opposition last time and ended up in the government and then finished out in the opposition again. Um, he, he's saying right now that he will uh, vote against a minority government, Lieberman. Uh, but the way I could see this panning out is, first of all, either he just joins the government um, which I don't put beyond the realm of possibility, even though it's just a couple of days away. Um, you know, I think he has to take his one last big stand uh, on this issue because the idea of secularism is very important for this uh, Russian-speaking immigrant base that he appeals to. And there's that. Or, you know, he says that he'll vote against a minority government, but he stays in the opposition and he votes against resolutions to dissolve the government, thus keeping a very narrow 60-seat coalition, like you mentioned, uh, 60-seat coalition afloat. So, you know, we'll have to see where things exactly come down on Tuesday. Um, there, I mean, there is the factor, though, uh, with Lieberman not joining the government. Uh, he didn't have an amazing showing in this election. It's his worst showing ever. It just sort of happened that he ended up being the party that was sort of the kingmaker. But... Yeah, I know. But I, I mean, I would say at the same time, I mean, nobody thought, I think, that Lieberman would even pass the threshold. He was pulling below the threshold a month before the election. Um, yeah. Right. My, my point my point is that I don't know if he want I don't know if he wants to put himself in a position where he has to go where he's risking elections sooner than it's necessary. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, some of his voters may expect him to join a right-wing government, just as they expect him to stand strong on the secularism issue and the issue of this uh, ultra-Orthodox draft bill. Uh, they may also have a a parallel expectation that he will be representing their interests in the government, um, that it's meaningful uh, for him to have a ministerial portfolio, uh, potentially the Ministry of Defense, like he did last time. So there may be pressure you know, for him to join uh, for political reasons, 
um, to keep his his voters happy. So again, we'll we'll have to wait and see how that pans out. Um, but you know, it certainly is not laying the groundwork for anything promising in the direction of our issue of a two-state solution for this uh, most right-wing government in Israel's history, more right-wing than the previous government, which people called the most right-wing government, to be formed at a time when the Trump administration is trying to organize this uh, economy-first workshop that's going to dovetail all the political issues and skip the traditional two-state solution model. Um, So... uh, can I ask why it's more right wing than the previous government? I think the the possibility of um, the union of right wing parties um, having some of the portfolios because in the last it's not that the 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 factions that are represented in the union of right wing parties haven't been in the Knesset before, but in the last government and I can't believe them I'm, I'm not talking about them as moderates but Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked certainly not moderates very far right but they are less far right than, say, uh, Smotrich, who was further down the list because his uh, Takuma faction uh, was just one part of uh, what was then by Yehudi. True, but also at the same time, they had they had uh, more seats and also Shaked and Bennett, uh, especially Shaked, uh, two of the most effective lawmakers and ministers in terms of getting things done. Um, and also... Uh, uh, the last point is that, I mean, the last government was 67 uh, seats, uh, which were exclusively right-wing until Lieberman left, leaving it at 61. Here we have a situation where without Lieberman, they're only at 60. And I mean, that just, I mean, we'd be talking a di- an entirely different story, and I would agree with you completely if Naftali Bennett and even Moshe Feiglin crossed the threshold, and we're talking about only a Jeez, few Mo- Mo- thousand Fe- votes. Feiglin, I, haven't, I haven't thought about him in... <laughs> In a month and a I half. Know, I know. I was. It was. He was all everybody was thinking about, and now he's. He's. I don't even know what he's. What he's doing. Maybe he's uh, starting a marijuana farm in northern Israel. Uh, well, well, okay. So I'll, I'll counter those points. You have the biggest Likud showing. Um, you have the pre-election pledge from the Likud uh, candidates to endorse annexation, um, and you also have a larger religious showing, um, which is not necessarily. The same as it's not. I would not associate that with the right wing uh, p- political like policies that have to do with the Israeli Palestinian issue. Right, right, right. That's what I was saying. It's not. It's not necessarily the same as the national religious camp or the religious Zionist ideology. Um, but lately, you know, previously the, the ultra orthodox seem to be willing to go between the center and the right and the left and the right. Uh, but lately, I think they've come to affiliate themselves more exclusively with the right wing than in the past. And, and they've become, even if their ideology or their philosophy doesn't reflect uh, specifically what the national religious and the, the pro-settlement, pro-annexation camps are saying, um, they have nevertheless become a little more partisan in the fact that they are um, more and more uh unwilling to associate with any camp other than the right wing, at least publicly. So um, that, that's where that's where I would leave it on the, the situation uh, in the domestic political arena in Israel. Yeah, so we can I mean, we can we can we can we can agree uh, to disagree. Um, obviously, there were you talked about the election campaign promises. We all know about Netanyahu and election campaign promises and how they don't they don't mean much. Um, but that is the state of affairs. And again, 
um, an important thing to note, uh, we're, we're talking about that if uh, there's not a government of 65, um, if it's 60 and if Lieberman's out, that's the, the most likely scenario is back to elections. It's not Benny Gantz forming a government. Gantz doesn't even have 60 MKs to uh, support him to make the government. So that's the situation. That's where we're at. Um, the, the other thing maybe we should mention is that uh, Netanyahu uh, has his uh, hearing. He got his hearing uh, delayed, uh, postponed uh, to October. Um, this is on the on the three charges uh, that the attorney general recommended he be indicted on during the election cycle. I think it was February. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it happened in February. Yeah. Um, and it was initially, it was supposed to be in July initially. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that was pushed back. Um, uh, what a lot of people are talking about over here is uh, Netanyahu's uh, passing his immunity, uh, some sort of immunity law, whether it's uh, through a special personal law from him or where it's uh, re- reinstating this Knesset member immunity law uh, that was... Uh, that was kind of put away in 2003, I believe, and bring that back. Um, and so that's happening, and there's a big uh, a protest being scheduled by the Blue and White Party, uh, keeping Israel's democracy uh, intact, uh, scheduled to this weekend in Tel Aviv, and that's something that uh, the Israeli opposition seems to be putting a lot of uh Resources and and, and fo- really focusing on, uh, especially because we also had voices within the Likud party speaking ag- against Netanyahu immunity, including uh, Netanyahu's big rival Gidon Sar. We mentioned that on our on our last episode, but that's pretty much where things are at uh, in uh, in Israeli politics at the moment. Evan, I want to disagree with you on something else. Any ideas? What, what do you want to disagree with me? I don't know. What, maybe what, another what? Eurovision song. Maybe. Uh, I mean, we could talk about favorite fast food Mexican restaurants. Uh, All right, what, what's your what's your favorite Mexican fast food restaurant? Well, I mean, I, I, the only the only time by, I eat I eat fast Mexican food, it's usually with you, and so I don't know. It's either Dos Toros or Chipotle, I guess. I don't think I've had Chipotle in like two and a half years. Um, I think I think I think Dos when Toros you started it at Israel Policy Forum, I mean, uh, as two, an intern, uh, sure, an intern. I think you three, exclusively three ate Chipotle. Ago. I think there were months on end where there was nothing else that you that that was digested in in your stomach. It was just Chipotle, Chipotle, Chipotle. I think that's exaggerated because I was only an intern for two and a half months, and so you know you're talking about months on end. I, months I on end, two and a half months. Okay, so uh, two and a half months. So so yeah, I mean, I I would say we're talking about uh, these two fast casual. I would call the Mexican imitation. I don't even. I, I, I don't think I don't uh, Tex-Mex, right? Tex-Mex Mexicans. is the term, I think. No. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what you want to call it, but you have Chipotle and Dos Toros. Um, I just think Dos Toros is is a little better than Chipotle. There, there's something that feels a little more fresh, as fresh as these chain restaurants can get. And you know how I feel about chain restaurants. I know. I was just going to say your admiration for chain restaurants on the science behind each and every portion and the ingredients. It's it's. I mean, I I have respect for your admiration, but I'm just. I'm more. I'm a. I'm a different kind of guy. I'm just about the holes in the wall. You know, the, the gourmet, so, uh, 
but 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 I mean, so I guess that's another place where we disagree. But uh, before we get taken away, do they have, to, do they have chilies in Israel yet? No, no, not yet. I mean, you have some chains, obviously. Uh, you have a Roma in every corner, which is obviously uh, it was once a a, a fad. Now uh, most people don't get get near it. Now no longer. Much like Chipotle. Anyways, come come back to me. Come back to me when they open Chili's in Israel. Okay, um, sounds good. Right. Sounds With good. With that, we're gonna leave, we're gonna leave this episode. Um, thanks for listening, and you can catch us next week on Israel Policy Pod. Okay.